The following audio is from Jacob's Well Church. For more information about Jacob's Well Church, please visit www.jacobswellgb.org. Let's pray. Lord, we come to your word this morning, a people flawed in our thinking, finite in our understandings. And yet, Lord, we know that you are a perfect father, that you are perfect in all of your ways. And so as we come to passages today that maybe we would struggle with, that would be difficult for us, let us remember your character, that you are a loving, gracious father who is perfect in everything. Lord, we pray through your word this morning that you would bring to our hearts areas where your kingdom needs to be extended, places where your redemption needs to roll forth in our attitudes and our actions and our behaviors. And Lord, may you receive the glory for the work that you do this morning in our hearts, in our lives, in this church, throughout this city and throughout the world. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. A couple summers ago, I got home from work and my wife shared with me that she had a visitor that day. There was a young boy from down the street, probably about 10 years old, who had rang our doorbell. And when she opened the door, the young boy said, I will do anything for money. <laughs> and while I appreciate his enthusiasm, kids, I would tell you, uh, you can try this at home, but don't try it at anyone else's home, okay? It's not a safe way to earn money. Well, a few days or a few weeks went by, I'm not sure, and I was working in my garage. It was on my day off, and this boy comes into my garage, and he says, can you help me start a lawnmower? Evidently, he had gone to my neighbor, my elderly neighbors, with this proposal of I will do anything for money, and their lawn was about 12 inches high, and so they hired him to mow his lawn. And so I went over, and I helped him start the lawnmower, and off he went, and I went back into the garage to work. When I heard the lawnmower turn off, I went over to make sure he wasn't out of gas, that he was okay, that he was doing a good job. And as I walked over, he had completed the yard, but there were these mohawks throughout the yard. I don't know what else to call them, like grass mohawks, look like little grass sharks swimming through the yard. And there was probably a dozen to two dozen of these. And wanting to watch out for my elderly neighbors, but also love this kid, I thought, okay, I need to say something to him. So I go up to this young boy and I say, you did a very, very good job. And he said, thank you. And I said, but, but you see those areas that you missed, you know, the, all those grass mohawks, you should probably go back and get those. And he kind of pushed back and I said, well, how much did they pay you? And he said, they pay me $35. And I'm thinking, man, I am in the wrong profession. Like that's <laughs> for an hour's worth of work. That is good money continued to try to encourage him, hey, hey, you know, go back and get those areas. And so finally, I was kind of pressing harder, and I said, said, look at all the areas that you missed. And his response was, but look at all the areas that I got. <laughs> to which he had a point. He did get about 95% of the lawn. But the 5% that was sticking up was like a sore thumb. You know, so many times God comes to me, comes to us, and we treat him in this way. We look at all the ground that we have made, and God comes to us, and he looks at the landscape of our life, and he sees areas where we are missing, areas where we are sinning against him. And he says to us, let's go over here. Let's brush this up. Let's take this out. 
And we respond saying, but God, look at all the things I have done for you. Look at all the areas I have covered. You know, as you look at the landscape of your life, your pursuit of the glory of God, what areas of your life are sticking up like grass mohawks? What areas of your life are you obeying God for the most part, but there is still that 5% where you are not sure you want to follow him? Maybe you say, I will go to church and I will worship the Lord as he has called me to do, unless there's a Packers game. Maybe you say, I will give to the poor, I will help the needy, I will help the fatherless, unless it's inconvenient. Maybe you say, I will love my wife and respect my mom as long as she is lovely and caring towards me. Or maybe you are trying to wean yourself off sin and you say, you know what? I cheated 12 times last year. This year, I'll only cheat six times. Or maybe yesterday, I lusted after something that wasn't mine 10 times. Today, I'll just lust after something that's not mine five times. But all of these are examples of partial obedience. And what we are going to see today is that God is not indifferent towards partial obedience. In fact, God is not happy about partial obedience. In fact, God grieves over partial obedience and he calls us to repentance, to pursue a holy life, fully obedient to the Lord. If you would, please open up to 1 Samuel chapter 15. It is page 237 in the Red Bible, page 369 in the Children's Bible. If this is your first time here, you'll want to keep your Bible open. We'll be going through it throughout the sermon, and so please keep that open. If you are like me and you see a title such as this, Full Obedience, it is a scary subject. As I worked on this passage throughout this week, I had to consider all the areas of my life, and there are many where, where partial obedience is the standard of living. And this calling to full and complete obedience for me, and I'm guessing for you as well, is tremendously challenging, but also tremendously scary and seemingly impossible. And so I want to remind our hearts, my heart included, of four reasons why we should not settle for partial obedience, but pursue full obedience before the Lord our God. The first is this. We must fully obey God because God defends us. Look in verse one with me. First Samuel 15, verse one. Let's read through verse three. And Samuel said to Saul, the Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people, Israel. Now, therefore, listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts. I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. The Lord's command for his king is crystal clear. King Saul is to wipe out a nation off the face of the earth, to devote to destruction every animal, as well as every man, woman, child, and even infant. What a delightful 
Mother's Day passage. You know, passages like these are so hard for us to swallow at first glance. Passages like these lead us to question God's character. And many times we blindly assume, we wouldn't say this, but we assume that we ourselves are more lenient than God, more kind than God, more gracious than God, more merciful than God. It's passages like these that people come to and they say, you know, the God of the New Testament is a God of love and mercy and grace, but the God of the Old Testament is just a mean, angry old man. But we know that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And he is unchanging in his character and his attributes and his compassion. And so this may seem very strange at first to you, but I would suggest that God commands the annihilation of the Amalekites, even infants, as an expression both of his justice, but also an expression of his love. To explain this, I will have to back up the story a little bit and give you a little bit of context. If you're here during the series when we went through Exodus, you probably remember some of these things. But God's people were in Egypt for 400 years under slavery. The slavery became more and more oppressive to the point where they're actually killing off the children of the Israelites. Into this broken situation, God comes to his people and he sends Moses. And we read this. It says, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. You know, as we watched this video earlier, I'm guessing many of you thought about your moms and how much you appreciate all that they have done for you. But for many of you moms, I'm guessing it made you think about how much you love and cherish and appreciate your children. Here is the God of the entire universe, the one who created the cosmos the one who created you and me, the one who is sustaining all things. And he's coming and he's saying, I have set my love and affection, my fatherly cherishment on this particular people, the people of God, the people of Israel. This is my firstborn son. And so we fast forward and we know that God delivers them out of Egypt through the Red Sea. And as they're wandering through the wilderness, they say, I am hungry. And God, the good, good father provides for the manna in the desert. And then they say, I am thirsty. And God, the good, good father, provides them water in the desert. And then they are attacked by the Amalekites, the people that we're looking at today. And God defends them and guards them and gives them victory over them. We read in Exodus 17, 14, after God gives them this great victory, it says this, Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua that I may utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And then the story is continued or retold in Deuteronomy 25. And we actually learn more about what happened on that day. In Deuteronomy 25, 17, it says, Remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you came out of Egypt, how he attacked you on the way when you were faint and weary and cut off your tail, those who were lagging behind you, and he did not fear God. And so in other words, what Amalek did, instead of coming at the military of Israel, which they really didn't have any, instead of coming at the front, they came at the back. And what they did is they took out those that were disabled, those that were weak, uh, those that were maybe pregnant or nursing, and they came, and those were the people that they attacked. 
It goes on and says, Therefore, when the Lord your God has given you rest from all your enemies around you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance to possess, you shall blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. You shall not forget. You know, we look at these passages where God calls for the extermination of the Amalekites and we think that he's such a mean God. But to be honest with you, the Amalekites make Nazis look like Boy Scouts. The Amalekites were a horrific, horrific people. They would attack the weak, the vulnerable, the lame, the disabled. Generation after generation, they ruthlessly attacked people that were wandering in the wilderness. And they had no fear of God's wrath. And so God gave them decades generations to repent and change their ways, and evidently they had not. They were ruthlessly terrorizing people nonstop. And so God in this command includes women, children, and infants, not only because that is just, but also because God is ending the generational sin. God is ending the future tyranny of this people. God's command to wipe out the Amalekites was an expression of God's justice, repaying the Amalekites for their horrific sin against their enemies for centuries. But it was also an expression of God's love for his child, God's love for his people. He sought to defend them from future harm at the hands of these people. Now that it's getting warmer outside, I have been jogging more. And I love to jog through UWGB, the arboretum there, which is a fancy term for the woods. And so I love jogging on the wood trails through there. It's a beautiful thing. You see lots of wildlife. Just last week I was jogging. I was turning a corner near the end of my route. And as I came around the corner, I saw these two geese. And that's pretty normal. And usually what I do is I will keep jogging towards the geese and the geese will kind of waddle into the woods. Well, this time as I was jogging towards the geese, the geese didn't move. And so I slowed down and I looked and I noticed that next to the geese were about a dozen goslings, little geese ducks, or geese, not geese ducks, little, uh, <laughs> little geese geese, right? So anyway, so then I slow down and I start to walk slower because backtracking would be difficult. I'd actually have to cross kind of this, this river, this ravine, and uh, which is what I ended up doing. But um, but I start going slower to, towards these geese, hoping that it will give them time for them and their, their goslings to kind of go into the woods. And as I come closer slowly, the mother goose does what? <laughs> Raises its wings, lowers its head, and starts charging me. And I'm thinking of that movie, Birds, is it? Or Ravens, whatever. And I'm thinking that these birds are going to pluck out my eyes. And so I start running away. I know some of you are rooting for that goose. <laughs> Repent. <laughs> you know, when a mother goose attacks in order to protect its goslings, we understand and appreciate that. None of us question the character of that mother goose for attacking a predator, potential predator. In fact, we would only question her if she didn't, wouldn't we? 
And yet we come to passages like this and we say, is God cruel? Is God mean? God's a dad. He's a father. He loves his children. And as he sends this command to attack and annihilate the Amalekites, it should not make us question his character. It should make us worship him. It should make us realize his great love for his people, for his children, that he will protect and defend them from their enemies. Let's keep reading. Verse 4. So Saul summoned the people and numbered them in Telaim, 200,000 men on foot and 10,000 men of Judah. And Saul came to the city of Amalek and lay in wait in the valley. Then Saul said to the Kenites, Go, depart, go down from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. For you showed kindness to all the people of Israel when they came up out of Egypt. So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites. Really quickly, you see here that God's just judgment is not indiscriminate. It's specifically pointed to the Amalekites. Verse 7. And Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt. And he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and of the oxen and of the fattened calves and the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless, they devoted to destruction. The Lord had given his king, Saul, crystal clear instruction to devote everything to destruction. But Saul, thinking himself to know better than God, only partially obeys. He devotes some of the people to destruction, but keeps the king alive, most likely to keep him as a trophy. He devotes the worthless animals to destruction, but keeps the best alive as spoils for his people. You see, Saul failed to realize something that we often fail to realize, that God's commands are not random, that God's commands are not suggestions. Rather, God's commands are specific. They are wise, and they are always, always, always good. God's commands are an expression of his love towards his children to defend them, from future harm. Today, God is commanding us to total obedience, not because he is a cranky, bitter old man, but because you are his child, because he loves you, because he delights in you, and because he wants to defend you from the harm that comes through disobedience and through partial obedience. And so, We must fully obey God because God loves us and defends us. Secondly, we must fully obey God because God delights in us. Let's look at verses 10 through 23 together. The word of the Lord came to Samuel, the prophet. 
He says, I regret or grieve that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And Saul was angry, and he cried to the Lord all night, and Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning. A few things I want to point out here very quick. First, notice that God does not say that Saul turned partially away from him, but that Saul had turned away from him completely. In other words, partial obedience is not obedience at all. Second thing, quickly, look at Samuel's response. It's such a great model for us of how we should respond when others sin against us or against those that we love. Samuel is not indifferent towards Saul's sin. He doesn't sweep it under the rug or say, it's okay. Saul is angered over Saul's sin. He grieves him. He goes to the Lord in prayer. He cries out to God, what should he do? And then in the morning, he does not go and tell his family or his neighbors at what awful king Saul is, but he goes to Saul himself to confront him one-on-one. Verse 12, again, and it was told Saul, Saul, it was told Samuel, Saul came to Carmel and behold, he set up a monument for himself, and turned and passed on and went down to Gilgal. This monument is a clear indicator of whose name and whose glory Saul is living for. Verse 13, and Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, blessed be you to the Lord. I perform the commandment of the Lord. And Samuel said, what then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears? And the lowing of the oxen that I hear. Saul said, oh, them? Um, They have brought them from the Amalekites. For the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God. And the rest we have devoted to destruction. You know, we try so hard to hide our sin, don't we? We try so hard to not expose it to other people, but God has a magnificent way through his grace of exposing our sins to those around us. We saw in verse 11 that, that through divine revelation, God reveals to Saul the prophet, to, excuse me, to Samuel the prophet, that Saul had not been obedient. And then here it's confirmed through hard evidence. I mean, could you imagine being in this conversation, how funny it must have been when King Saul says to Samuel, he says, I have performed the commandments of the bah. I performed the commandments of the moo. You either have to laugh or cry. It is funny, but it's also so sad. And then you see Saul's response as he backpedals. First, Saul blames it on the people. They brought them out. I didn't want to do it, but they did it. And then he spiritualizes it. And he says, well, we brought them out to sacrifice them to the Lord. You know, religion is often a great cover-up for sin. The third thing I just want to point out is that Saul distances himself from God, saying to Samuel, the Lord, your God. Samuel had run so far from God. God did not run from, Saul ran so far from God. God did not run from Saul, but Saul had been disobeying God and running from God. And now he no longer considered the Lord his personal God. Verse 16. Then Samuel said to Saul, stop. I will tell you what the Lord said to me this night. And he said to him, speak. And Samuel said, though you are little in your own eyes, Are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? 
The Lord anointed you king over Israel, and the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go, devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoils and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me. I have brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people, there it is again, shifting the blame. The people took the spoil, sheep and oxen, the best of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. And Samuel said this, and this is where I want to focus in on for this point. Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings as sacrifices, as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Let's give Saul the benefit of a doubt just for a second. Let's pretend that Saul brought the animals back in order to sacrifice them to God. Let's just pretend. I don't believe that. Samuel doesn't believe it. But let's just pretend. Samuel says that Saul's well-intentioned disobedience to God, to God's explicit command, is rebellion. It's not only rebellion, but it is as divination or idolatry. It is to worship another God or to go after other gods to seek their knowledge and guidance. This is a serious accusation. Elizabeth Elibit at Urbana in 1976 told a story of her brother Thomas Howard. Their mother let him play with paper bags one day. I guess it was a different time. Paper bags were fun. And she told him that after he was done playing with the paper bags that he had to put them away. Well, lo and behold, she comes back and she sees paper bags all over the kitchen. But she hears from another room the piano playing and, and the, this boy and, and his father are there singing hymns together. And when she comes to him to confront him, he protests saying, but mom, I want to sing. And his father turned to him and said, it's no good singing God's praises if you're disobedient. Just to be clear, God is not calling Saul to stop gathering and worshiping the Lord. This is commanded throughout the Old and New Testament. But what God is calling Saul and calling us to here is to not use worship as an excuse for disobedience. What God is telling us through the prophet Samuel is that God cares as much about your obedience Saturday night as he does about your worship Sunday morning. That who or what you worship on Saturday night is as important to God as who or what you worship on Sunday morning. I don't know if you've ever done this. I don't know if you've ever rationalized sin with religion. If you said, you know, it doesn't really matter what I do today because I know that I'm going to church on Sunday and I'll hear God's forgiveness again. Or if you say, you know what, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go this direction tonight, but you know what, on, on Sunday, I'll go to church to make up for it. You know, in this passage, there is an amazing truth that's being communicated to us. And I want to make sure that we don't miss it. And it's this, when you reach that fork in the road, 
when you are tempted to sin and you know what your sin is, you know what your struggle is, when you're tempted to go down that path, when Satan is screaming in one ear and the Holy Spirit is whispering in the other ear on what path to go, and in that moment, in that flashpoint, when you choose obedience, here's the most glorious part, when you choose obedience, the God who delights in you is delighted by you. God is delighted in your obedience. He delights in you as a child, but he is delighted by your obedience. Moms, this is not a stretch for you to understand, is it? If you tell your kids to take something up to their room and you, they take it halfway up and put it on the landing, you're still delighting them as your child. But if they actually do what they say they're going to do, delight, rejoice. And so when we choose obedience, the Father delights in us, and he delights in us, not because we're merely obedient to him, but because when we obey God, we are choosing to delight in him above all other idols of the world. And so God delights in our obedience. We must fully obey because he defends us. We must fully obey because he delights in us. Finally, we must, not finally, thirdly, we must fully obey God because God disciplines us. Verse 23 again. For rebellion is as the sin of divination and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Finally, we get to the root of Saul's sin. He desires the approval of men over the approval of God. He fears the approval, the disapproval of men over the discipline of God. Verse 25. Now, therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may bow before the Lord. And Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you for you have rejected the word of the Lord and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. And Samuel turned to go away. Saul seized the skirt of his robe and it tore. And Samuel said to him, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. And also the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret for he is not a man that he should have regret. In other words, God is not going to change his mind on this. God is going to tear the kingdom away from you. Verse 30, then he, Saul said, I have sinned. Yet honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel and return with me that I may bow before the Lord your God. So Samuel turned back after Saul and Saul bowed before the Lord. Saul is not only guilty of partial obedience. Saul is also guilty of partial repentance. If you notice, Saul never repents until he realizes the consequences for his sin. And when Saul does go to repent, he will be fine repenting in private before God, but he does not want to repent before the elders and before the people who he has sinned against. I don't know if you notice the contradiction in verse 30. It's actually quite comical. Saul says, I have sinned, yet honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel. Nothing has changed. Saul is still seeking the approval of men before obedience to God. Our disobedience, our partial obedience has consequences. Here we are told that 
from Saul, the kingdom was going to be torn. For us, we know that God is not indifferent towards our sin. And for that reason alone, we must fear God and obey God. If you are a child of God, you need no longer fear God as judge. He has welcomed you into his family, but you are called to fear God as a good, good father who disciplines his children. A couple of weeks ago, I was talking to a mother and uh, she had told me that when she was raising her children, as they got older, she would spank them when they were disobedient. I can't, yeah, don't sue her, okay? But she was spanking her children when they were disobedient. And, uh, and then they started to laugh at her because she wasn't very strong. And so she got a rod. And they had a rod. And whenever the kids were very disobedient, what would happen would be she would tell them they'd have to go get the rod and then that they would have to meet on a different level of the house. And the reason they would go to a different level of the house was so that the parent could pray along the way to make sure that they were disciplining, not out of anger or not out of hurt, but out of love. And what's so interesting is at the time, I'm sure that the kids hated the rod. As a matter of fact, what they would call it when they took that rod and walked, they called it the, the walk of shame. They hated that rod. And yet every single one of their children has thanked them for disciplining them. And every one of them that has children has their own rod. Hebrews 12 tells us very clearly. It says, my son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when approved by him, for the Lord disciplines the ones he loves. We have all had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? He disciplined us for our good that we may share his holiness. God loves his children so much that he disciplines them. Divine discipline is not fun, but it is for our protection. And it is an expression of his love to keep us from going down a path of self-destruction. We must fully obey God because God disciplines us out of love and does not spare his discipline from us. The final reason our hearts should obey God is because God delivers us. Verse 32. Then Samuel said, bring here to me Agag, the king of the Amalekites. And Agag came up to him cheerfully. Agag said, surely the bitterness of death is past. And Samuel said, as your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel hacked Agag to pieces before the Lord in Gilgal. Then Samuel went to Ramah and Saul went to his house in Gibeah of Saul. And Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death. But Samuel grieved over Saul. And Lord regretted or grieved that he had made Saul king over Israel. Was it really necessary for Samuel the prophet to hack Agag to pieces? Absolutely. It was what God had commanded. Samuel was finishing off the job that King Saul was supposed to do. Samuel was putting to death that which threatened the people of God for generations to come. Remember, the Lord had delivered the people of God from the Amalekites. He had given them a great victory so that the people of God would never be threatened by the Amalekites ever again. And here Samuel is finishing off the job to end the threat. 
Here's the application for us. Just as in verse 35, Samuel hacked Agag to pieces before the Lord. We too are called to full obedience. We too are called to hack to pieces our partial obedience. We are called to hack to pieces our sin in our life. Sin is not to be toyed with. It is to be put to death. Partial obedience is a sin and sin is deadly serious. You see, it is because of our partial obedience and our radical disobedience that God, our good, good father, sent his son, his only beloved son, his firstborn son, Jesus. Philippians 2.8 tells us that Jesus being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming what? Obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Christ lived a life of full obedience as we are called to do. He was obedient to the point of death because that is what our disobedience deserves. You see, at the cross, there is this great exchange for our deliverance, for all who trusts in Christ. At the cross, Christ took on our disobedience, our partial obedience, and it was hacked to pieces. But then Christ rose from the grave to give us newness of life and give us his perfect obedient righteousness before a holy God. You see, in Christ, God has not only delivered us from the penalty of sin, but here's the important part. Christ has also delivered us from the power of sin. So that now as children of God, possessors of the righteousness of Christ, we can live free from sin. In 1838, on a night when slaves were set free in Jamaica, a large mahogany coffin was made and a grave was dug. Into that coffin, the liberated slaves threw the reminders of their former life of slavery, whips and torture irons and branding irons and handcuffs. And then they screwed the lid on and at midnight, they buried the coffin into the ground. And then they sang the doxology, praise God from whom all blessings flow. If today we read a newspaper article that the descendants of these slaves dug up the coffin and they began to inflict torture upon themselves through these irons and these brandings and these whips and these handcuffs, we would say they are absolutely insane. And yet those who have been freed in Christ, when we return to sin, this is exactly what we are doing. Romans 6 puts it so well. It says, our old self was crucified with Christ in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. For the death Christ died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments of righteousness. And then I love this line, for sin will have no dominion over you. Brothers and sisters in Christ, children of God, sin has no dominion over you. At the cross, Christ not only delivered us from the penalty of sin, but also from the power of sin that we might go and obey God and glorify him in all that we do. Let me end with this. You may be sitting here. You may be thinking, I can't fully obey God. That's impossible. 
To which I would say, amen. <laughs> You're right. And the Bible recognizes this. In the book of 1 John, he says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. We're liars if we say we have no sin. But then just a few later, verses later, he says, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, which we will, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation, the satisfaction for our sins. You see, our goal in this life is to be conformed into the image of Jesus, to become fully obedient to God, because this is what it means to be fully free, to be fully human, and to fully glorify God. But when we sin, and we will, our good, good Father is ready to forgive because Jesus paid the penalty for our sin, because Jesus is our righteousness before God, because Jesus is our full obedience for all eternity. Roger Stahlbeck, who led the Dallas Cowboys to Super Bowl victory in 1971, admitted that his position as a quarterback, a quarterback who didn't call his own plays, was a source of great trial for him. He exclaimed that Coach Landry sent in every play and told Roger what to do for every play, whether to pass, whether to run, what to do. And even though Roger considered Coach Landry to have a genius mind when it came to football strategy, it was so difficult for him to take that role of simply obeying because of pride in his own heart. He thought he should be able to lead his own team. And then he says this, and I'll quote him. This is what he says, quote, I faced up to the issue of obedience. Once I learned to obey, there was harmony, fulfillment, and victory. Friends, it is time to face up to our issue of obedience. Full, unhindered obedience to God. We must obey God because God loves us and defends us through his commandments. We must fully obey God because God delights in us. We must obey God because God disciplines us for our good. And we must obey God because God delivered us from the penalty and the power of sin. And so in the words of Roger Stahlbeck, let us face up to the issue of obedience. For in obedience, there is harmony, fulfillment, and victory. Let's pray. Lord, we come today confessing we are not fully obedient. We are far from it, God. And so, Lord, pray by your Holy Spirit that you empower us to choose the path of righteousness for your delight and for your glory. Lord, as we turn to your table, we are reminded that obedience comes with great sacrifice. We thank you for the sacrifice of Christ on our behalf. And we pray that you would nourish us through this meal to live in obedience to you. And when we don't, to come to you in repentance, in genuine repentance, and know the forgiveness that we have in Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.